I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The haunting secrets of a master medium. People thought this box could prove that there was life beyond the grave. A daring ascent that descends into tragedy. This is an incredible story about adventure in one of the harshest climates on Earth. And a vicious crime born of jealousy and revenge. The minister was killed with a woman that was not his wife. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Situated in the scenic waters of Lake Huron is Mackinac Island, Michigan. Once the center of the fur trade for the Midwestern United States and Canada, today it is a national landmark and popular tourist destination. And among Mackinac's many attractions is an institution that celebrates its frontier origins, the American Fur Company's store and museum. Here, among displays of traditional apparel, vintage commodities, and archaic medical instruments is an unlikely relic. The object is a very plain paper-bound artifact measuring about six by nine inches. According to Deputy Director Stephen Brisson, the pages of this small tome detail a horrific accident and its shocking aftermath. In the annals of American history, this is an iconic object. How is this book linked to one of the most dramatic breakthroughs in modern medicine? 1822, Mackinac Island, Michigan. This parcel of land is a teeming hub for fur traders across North America. By the 1820s, that fur trade was basically a monopoly of the American Fur Company, a company founded by John Jacob Astor, America's first millionaire. On this day, the island's physician, Dr. William Beaumont, responds to a frantic call for help at the American Fur Company store. Inside the shop, he finds an 18-year-old employee named Alexis St. Martin lying on the floor covered in blood. The young man is the victim of a horrific accident. Alexis St. Martin was in the American Fur Company store when another man's musket mischarged. He was shot from behind. The gunfire tore through St. Martin's back left side, leaving him a bloody, mangled mess. There was a gaping wound about the size of a, a human hand uh, on his side. With St. Martin's organs spilling out of his body, Dr. Beaumont desperately attempts to save the young man's life. The first thing that Dr. Beaumont did was replace the organs that he could, putting the stomach basically back in place. 
but the physician believes his efforts are for naught. Dr. Beaumont didn't feel that St. Martin was long for this world because the wound was so ghastly. To everyone's surprise, St. Martin survives the night. And over the next few months, the teenager makes a miraculous recovery, with one shocking exception. The one thing that didn't heal was the hole into the stomach. This creates a ghastly complication for the teenage patient. When you have a hole in your stomach, anything you eat is coming out of it. So eventually Dr. Beaumont had bandages. He had a a compress basically against that hole that allowed him to, to keep the food in. St. Martin eventually learns to live with this gaping hole in his midsection. And with his patient now in stable condition, Dr. Beaumont becomes fascinated by this unusual wound. It begins to dawn on him that he's been given a a great opportunity to study something nobody has ever studied before. The process of digestion has long confounded physicians. So Beaumont develops a series of experiments he hopes will shed light on the phenomenon. The doctor gathers various bits of food, such as bread, beef, and pork, and threads them onto long pieces of string. He then dangles the food scraps through the hole and into St. Martin's open stomach. Beaumont was going to see what happens to the food when it first gets into the stomach. Every hour, Beaumont pulls the food out and measures the rate of digestion. Dr. Beaumont discovered that different foods dissolve at different times in the stomach. Some go faster, some slower. But as he continues his experiments, Beaumont is mystified by one thing. He was trying to find out what the agent was in the stomach that was, was, was causing that food to dissolve. In search of answers, the doctor drains some of the fluid he finds inside St. Martin's stomach. Then, Beaumont places bits of food into containers full of this gastric liquid. With an unobstructed view, he watches as the fluid breaks down the chunks of food. The experiment leads to an astounding revelation. The major breakthrough was that gastric acid in the stomach dissolved food. Nobody knew that before then. Beaumont's findings prove that digestion is a chemical process. It's a breakthrough concept that soon becomes the basis for modern gastrological science. Over the course of the next 11 years, Dr. Beaumont conducts a wide range of experiments on Alexis St. Martin and collects his findings in a landmark report. And one of the first editions of this text, Experiments and Observations on the Gastric Juice and the Physiology of Digestion, is now on display at the American Fur Company store and Dr. Beaumont Museum. Dr. Beaumont's book is considered the the premier text in our understanding of human digestion. In 1853, 20 years after his experiments revolutionized the field of medicine, Dr. William Beaumont dies at the age of 68. Alexis St. Martin lives another 58 years after his gruesome injury before passing away in 1880. Today, at the American Fur Company store and Dr. Beaumont Museum, the physician's original publication stands as a lasting tribute to a man who ushered in a new understanding of the mysteries of the human body. Halfway between New York and Philadelphia lies the city of New Brunswick, New Jersey, home to the world-renowned Rutgers University. 
And just steps away from these halls of learning sits another one of the city's most revered institutions, the New Brunswick Public Library. Among its extensive collection are such rare items as a Civil War canteen, a 19th century doll, and an anchor from the Delaware and Raritan Canal. But according to local historian Julie Nomitis, one dull, seemingly unremarkable item features in a story that's truly one of a kind. It's oval-shaped, it's beige in color. The item has two splash-marked tears. When I look at that artifact, I think of the man that wore it, the last day that he wore it. This tattered accessory may look ordinary, but it was evidence in one of the most sensational trials of the Roaring Twenties. How is this hat linked to a brutal tale of adultery and murder? September 16th, 1922, New Brunswick, New Jersey. Just outside of town, a couple is enjoying a leisurely stroll down Lover's Lane when they come across a shocking sight. What they found were two bodies, a man and a woman, lying side by side. At first, the couple thought they were sleeping, but then they realized that these people were dead. The young couple alerts the police, and when they arrive, the officers immediately realize this is no ordinary crime scene. It appears that the bodies have been carefully posed. The man was lying on his back with his right arm outstretched, and the woman was laying in the crook of his arm, and covering the man's face was a hat. The same hat now on view at the New Brunswick Public Library. When the hat was removed, they saw that he was shot in the head. And then they realized that the woman had been shot in the head three times, and her throat had been cut almost from ear to ear. Police find a business card at the man's feet that reveals his identity. The calling card said, the Reverend Edward Wheeler Hall. Reverend Hall was the beloved minister of New Brunswick's Episcopal Church. But in some circles, he was better known for the woman he married, Frances Hall, an heiress to the Johnson & Johnson Medical Supply Company fortune. But it's not Mrs. Hall who was found in the deceased Reverend's arms. Police identify the female victim as 34-year-old Eleanor Mills, a soprano in the church's choir. The police are stumped. Who is responsible for the brutal slaying of these God-fearing people? As they search for answers, police find torn up pieces of paper scattered about the crime scene. When assembled like a jigsaw puzzle, they reveal that Reverend Hall and Eleanor Mills were having an affair. The ripped papers turned out to be love letters written by Reverend Hall and Mrs. Mills to each other. One of the letters had said, oh, honey, I'm fiery today. It's been ages since I've seen my babykins' body. They were quite salacious for the day. News of the couple's murder and their scandalous relationship spreads quickly. When the media got a hold of it, it was a very sensational thing. You have the minister that was killed on Lover's Lane with a woman that was not his wife. Even after the bodies are removed, fascination with the murder lingers, leading dozens of people to flood the crime scene, clamoring for macabre mementos. People started to take souvenirs. The police could not control the crowds. 
It took on a carnival atmosphere. In the frenzy, much of the evidence disappears or is compromised. With little to go on, investigators struggle to come up with a suspect. But when they learn from people close to the Reverend that his marriage was less than blissful, police turn their attention to his wife, Frances Hall. The Reverend had a strained relationship with his wife. One of the suspicions was that he married her for the money. And that was a very big bone of contention between them. Police begin to wonder, did Mrs. Hall murder the adulterous duo in a fit of jealous rage? It's 1922 in New Brunswick, New Jersey. After a local pastor and a choir singer are found brutally murdered, police discover the two had been conducting a scandalous affair. Investigators soon begin to focus on the pastor's wife, a wealthy heiress named Frances Hall. So is the heiress behind this gruesome murder? Investigators bring the pastor's wife in for questioning, but the widow immediately denies any involvement. With no evidence to dispute her claim, the police are forced to let her go. And when they broaden their search for new suspects, the case goes cold. But then, in 1926, someone comes forward with a startling revelation. A maid that had worked for the Halls said Mrs. Hall was, in fact, involved with the murders of her husband and Mrs. Mills. According to the maid, Mrs. Hall had long known about her husband's affair. But when she discovered that the Reverend planned to run off with his mistress, the enraged heiress enlisted her brothers to kill the lovers. As the maid's story unfolds, authorities begin to speculate that Hall and her brothers dragged the victims to Lover's Lane to expose the affair. The siblings are charged with murder, and on November 3, 1926, their sensational trial begins. The prosecution methodically lays out their case, but they're limited by a serious handicap. Any piece of evidence linking the suspects to the crime had been contaminated years earlier. Because the crime scene had been so mismanaged, so many things brought a reasonable doubt to the court. After only a month of testimony and arguments, the jury returns a hasty verdict. They only needed about five hours and 11 minutes to come back with an acquittal. And despite rampant speculation, the crime remains unsolved, prompting public fascination with the case to linger for years. Ultimately, this hat, which had been positioned by the murderers over the Reverend's face, is put on display at the New Brunswick Public Library, a reminder of a scandalous crime that once shocked this New Jersey city. Golden, Colorado. Founded during the Pikes Peak Gold Rush in 1859, this mile-high outpost sits just below the foothills of the imposing Rocky Mountains. And in the center of town is an institution that celebrates the sheer heights of adventure, the Bradford Washburn American Mountaineering Museum. It showcases tools from expeditions to celebrated peaks like K2 and military equipment designed for an elite World War II mountain unit. 
but one object on display lies at the heart of an epic ascent that divides the climbing community to this day. The artifact is two, two and a half feet long. It's oblong, cylindrical in shape, and has a silver, grayish valve on the top. As climbing expert Jake Norton can attest, this canister was carried on a bone-chilling excursion that is cloaked in uncertainty. This is an incredible story about risk, about adventure, in one of the harshest climates on Earth. What role did an oxygen tank like this play in a perilous quest that endures as the greatest mountaineering mystery? The early 1900s. Adventurers across the globe are testing their limits by ascending some of the planet's most forbidding peaks. And one of these intrepid mountaineers is British schoolteacher George Mallory. He was 37 years old, married to his loving wife, Ruth, father of three children, but he lived and breathed adventure. A veteran of major ascents in the Alps, Mallory aspires to be the first to scale the world's highest peak, Everest. And after two failed attempts, he is even more determined to succeed. I think he knew that if he could become the first person to summit Mount Everest, everything would be gravy. At 29,000 feet, this haunting peak presents a daunting challenge. With little oxygen in its upper reaches, altitude sickness is a real threat. It can lead to fatal swelling of the brain and lungs. But Mallory is convinced there is a solution. Climbers who were first going to these extreme altitudes started experimenting with the idea of carrying our own air on our backs. But this new technology is unreliable. So Mallory teams up with 22-year-old engineer and oxygen tank expert, Andrew Irvine. May 1924, Tibet. Mallory, Irvine, and the rest of the team depart base camp and begin the most treacherous part of their ascent, outfitted with climbing gear and oxygen tanks, like this one on display at the Bradford Washburn American Mountaineering Museum. After weeks of battling blizzards and biting temperatures, the team reaches their final campsite. And on June 8th, Mallory and Irvine begin the grueling 2,000-foot climb to the peak. The veteran is armed with a memento to mark what he hopes will be his triumph. Mallory had with him for that final summit assault a picture of his wife, Ruth, that he planned to leave in the summit snows. As fellow mountaineers watch the intrepid duo, the weather takes an ominous and potentially deadly turn. A monsoon squall moved in and covered up the entire view. Strong, destabilizing winds descend upon the climbers. As team members look on, they are left to wonder, will Mallory and Irvine reach the summit and live to tell their tale? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's 1924 in Tibet. Veteran climber George Mallory and his young partner Andrew Irvine are attempting to become the first men to summit the world's tallest mountain, Everest. But when a sudden snow squall envelops the peak, their mission is imperiled. So will Mallory and Irvine make it to the top? Finally, the blizzard passes, and the other mountaineers anxiously await their comrades' return. The expedition at this point must have been on pins and needles. Two of their favorite climbers had gone for the summit, and nobody knew what had happened to them. Soon, the team members form a search party. But when they find no trace of the pair, they can only conclude that Mallory and Irvine have perished. As news of the loss spreads, some begin to wonder, did they make it to the top? But without uncovering evidence of their ascent, it seems impossible to know. Nearly 30 years later, in 1953, New Zealander Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay become the first men to reach the top of Everest and live to tell about it. But many still wonder, did Mallory and Irvine get there first? Then, in 1999... American climber Jake Norton and seven others set out to solve the mystery once and for all. Norton's team follows the 1924 expedition route up Mount Everest. And on May 1st, 1999, just a few thousand feet from the summit, they are stopped in their tracks. We came upon a body dressed in old clothing at nearly 27,000 feet on the north face. But is it one of the intrepid duo? When I flipped over that first shirt collar and saw the little laundry label that said George Mallory on it, we were all just dumbstruck. But the question remains, did they reach the peak? Norton searches Mallory's body for the one piece of evidence he believes can solve the puzzle. The photograph of Mallory's wife that the adventurer intended to leave on the mountaintop. But it's missing. The fact that we didn't find the photograph to me says that there's a very good chance they got to the summit. I don't think Mallory would have left that photograph anywhere but where he promised his beloved wife he would leave it. In the end, Norton's team fails to find the body of Andrew Irvine. And while we may never definitively know whether Mallory and Irvine were the first to summit Everest, Today, this oxygen tank is a poignant reminder of those intrepid explorers who made the ultimate sacrifice in pursuit of new heights. Established in 1853, Unionville, Missouri was once a major coal mining hub. And today, on a quiet street in the city center is an institution that celebrates the cooperative union spirit the town was named after the Putnam County Historical Society Museum. Inside, visitors can see practical relics from the area's early settlers, 
including a pot for rendering animal fat, a contraption for perming hair, and a 19th century funeral coach. But one object on display appears to serve no useful purpose. It's a gray object, about a foot across, weighs about 10 pounds, and has what appears to be a rivet going through the center of it. According to aviation expert Shay Oakley, this artifact tells of an unspeakable act that ended in tragedy. Rescuers rush to the scene and basically find the worst case scenario. What is this chunk of metal? And how is it tied to a terrifying aviation disaster? May 22nd, 1962. Continental Flight 11 takes off from Chicago O'Hare Airport en route to Kansas City, Missouri. Piloting the plane is the experienced and confident Captain Fred Gray. Fred Gray is a 25-year veteran with Continental. He's been assigned to the 707, which is the newest and most impressive aircraft in the Continental fleet. When the jet reaches cruising altitude, Captain Gray radios with air traffic control about a massive chain of thunderclouds in the distance. Captain decides that he's going to alter course to avoid the line of thunderstorms. But back on the ground, air traffic controllers are alarmed by what they observe. They see that the radar target for Flight 11 is completely gone from the radar scope. The plane's signal has vanished. And when controllers radio Flight 11, there is no response. Unless there's very unusual double equipment failure, something is very wrong. Then, observers on the ground in Unionville, Missouri, watch a horrifying sight. Flight 11 plummeting towards the earth and slamming into an open field. Rescuers rush to the site and are greeted by a heartbreaking scene. Even for seasoned aircraft investigators, this is a horrific sight. The majority of the aircraft is now a twisted mass of wreckage. To uncover the cause of this catastrophic crash, the Civil Aeronautics Board launches an investigation. The immediate assumption would be it had something to do with the thunderstorm activity, since it's not uh, without precedent that airliners have been torn apart in thunderstorms. However, the flight path reveals that Captain Gray successfully steered clear of the dangerous weather. Then, As investigators sift through the wreckage, they make an incredible discovery. The entire back half of the plane is missing. It is soon discovered several miles away. Investigators are stumped. Boeing 707 is a very strong airplane. The tail just doesn't fall off. To determine what caused the plane to break up, Investigators begin the excruciating task of reconstructing the aircraft with pieces of the recovered wreckage. Like this chunk of metal on display at the Putnam County Historical Society. The process is painstakingly slow, but soon they detect a clue that shocks the entire team. They discover residue that indicates that it was specifically a dynamite explosion. Flight 11 was deliberately blown up. So who brought this plane down and why? It's 1962. Continental Flight 11 is en route from Chicago, Illinois to Kansas City, Missouri. 
when the passenger jet suddenly drops from the sky, killing all 45 people on board. Investigators determined that a dynamite explosion tore the plane from the sky. Who caused this terrible tragedy? To identify the culprit, the FBI examines the histories of every Flight 11 passenger. In the process of doing this background check, something catches their eye in regards to a passenger named Thomas Doty. Investigators discover that this family man has a criminal record. Then they locate a critical piece of evidence. The FBI finds Stody's luggage among the wreckage. They immediately have it tested, and the results are astounding. They find the residue from the dynamite on the inside of the luggage. That's basically the smoking gun. The authorities are convinced that Doty transported the explosives in his baggage on board the plane. But why would he blow up the aircraft, killing himself and 45 innocent passengers? It seems the answer lies in Doty's criminal past. Investigators discover that he was charged with armed robbery and was facing the possibility of life in prison. And that's not all. They also find out that Doty purchased a large life insurance policy and then augmented that with flight insurance that he purchased at Chicago O'Hare. Officials surmise that Doty was convinced he'd be found guilty of the crime. And facing the prospect of life in prison, he was desperate to find a way to provide for his wife and daughter. In his mind, the only action he could take was to secure his family's financial future. And that meant taking his own life and the lives of every other person on that airplane. Shortly after the crash, Doty's widow tries to claim the life insurance money. But when his death is classified as a suicide, the policy is voided. Today, the Putnam County Historical Society Museum displays this piece of wreckage from Flight 11, which memorializes the many lives lost in the catastrophic disaster 50 years ago. Just north of Cincinnati, The family-oriented suburb of Loveland, Ohio, is a quaint haven situated on the Little Miami Scenic Trail, one of the longest paved walking paths in the country. But just on the outskirts of this picturesque town, one institution chronicles the dark and often scandalous history of illusion, the Salon de Magie. Housed in the private home of Ken Klosterman, The collection showcases a vast array of artifacts from the world of magic, from devilish masks and priceless memorabilia to the imposing facade of a sarcophagus. But one seemingly unremarkable artifact may blur the line between life and death. It's a wooden box. It's got a flap of wood at the top. It looks like some strange homemade device. According to magic historian Gabe Fahuri, this box played a central role in a bone-chilling ritual. People thought this box could prove that there was life beyond the grave. So who used this mysterious object? And what shocking truth did it reveal? 1923, Boston, Massachusetts. In the city's most affluent homes, spiritualism is on the rise. Hoping to reach beyond the grave, people seek the aid of psychic mediums who are said to communicate with otherworldly spirits. 
and one of the most famous mediums of the day is 35-year-old Mina Crandon, known to the public as Marjorie the Medium. Mina Crandon was a spiritual medium who came to prominence in the 1920s. She demonstrated remarkable, apparent spiritualistic phenomena. Unlike other mediums, when Marjorie appears to connect with the spirits of the dead, the effects are felt in the land of the living. Objects appeared to move and shake, uh, the table began to tilt, and things happened of an otherworldly nature. Guests of Marjorie's seances marvel at her seemingly extraordinary powers. The reaction is absolute awe. They're thrilled that they're able to reach over the veil onto the other side. But as interest in Marjorie's astonishing gift grows, so does the desire to investigate it. In November of 1923, Scientific American magazine approaches her about an intriguing new contest. Scientific American offered a $2,500 prize to anyone who could prove they had produced genuine spiritualistic phenomena. And they want her to be their next candidate. To assess her powers, the magazine appoints a panel of judges to observe Marjorie at work. And one member of this prestigious group needs no introduction. The world-renowned illusionist, Harry Houdini. In recent years, Houdini has made a name for himself, not only as a master magician, but as a debunker of psychic mediums. In his experience, mediums are on the same plane as the magician. The difference is that a magician is deceiving people for entertaining purposes. He was of the opinion that mediums are deceiving people for fraudulent purposes. But Houdini, ever the showman, has a surprise up his sleeve. He presents Marjorie with a strange wooden box to incorporate into her seance. The same box now on display at the Salon de Magie. Inside the box is an electric bell. To prove her powers, Marjorie will need to compel the spirits to ring it. So the seance begins by the lights being extinguished. Everyone at the table joins hands, with Houdini sitting at Marjorie's left. Then, as Marjorie falls into her trance, the table begins to shake violently. Soon, the entire room seems to vibrate with the spirit's presence. Then, the bell in Houdini's box rings. Many of the sitters at the table are genuinely awed of Marjorie's powers. But there's one judge who isn't swayed. The only person who's not astonished, the real skeptic in the room, is Houdini. Harry Houdini is convinced that Marjorie is nothing more than a con artist. But how can he explain these ghostly phenomena? July 1924, a mystic named Marjorie the Medium is trying to convince a panel of judges from Scientific American that she can communicate with the dead. If she succeeds, she'll win $2,500 and national acclaim. But one of the judges, famed illusionist Harry Houdini, is out to prove that Marjorie is a fraud. Determined to expose her, 
Houdini claims to have an explanation for all of the phenomena the group has just witnessed. The magician, known as a skilled contortionist, believes Marjorie possesses similar talents. To test his theory, the master of muscle control intentionally positioned himself next to Marjorie at the table. Houdini, in the darkness of the room, uses his extended forefinger to detect almost imperceptible movements of her hand and her muscles. With his expert touch, Houdini sensed Marjorie slip her head under the table and lift it with only her head, causing the objects on top to shake. But how could Houdini explain the ringing of his own bell box? The illusionist explains that the box was nothing more than a trap. Houdini reveals that before the seance began, he secretly rolled up his pants on the leg touching Marjorie to detect any slight movement under the table. He detects Marjorie is moving the muscles or the side of her leg in a way that allows her to press the flap on the bell box and make it ring. Marjorie denies the charges, but Houdini's final revelation seals her fate. Houdini's explanations are very convincing. He publishes his own little expose of Marjorie, and she does not end up with the prize money. Thanks to Houdini's efforts, Marjorie's once spotless reputation as a gateway to the next world is forever tarnished, depriving her of the fame she so desperately sought. And this box, on display at the Salon de Magie, harkens back to a scandalous showdown where a mystical medium went head-to-head with the master of illusion and lost. Washington, D.C., home to the U.S. Capitol and the White House. It is the beating heart of the federal government. But just a few short blocks away down Pennsylvania Avenue is a museum that takes the temperature of the body politic. The museum. This institution celebrates the history of journalism and the news stories that have shaped our nation. And within its halls is an exhibit dedicated to the newsworthy work of the FBI. Here, visitors can observe pieces of the planes that struck the World Trade Center, inspect a replica of a homemade bomb, and marvel at a Mafia Don's gun-concealing cane. But among these complex devices lies a seemingly simple artifact that once brimmed with intrigue. It's about a foot and a half wide and about 10 inches tall. It's black with a green tint to it. According to retired FBI agent Mike Rochford, this garbage bag reveals a deadly case of Cold War tradecraft. This was one of the worst examples of espionage in the history of the United States. Who was the nefarious mastermind behind this deadly game of cunning, betrayal, and treason? 1994, the Washington, D.C. area. In the wake of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. intelligence community has uncovered evidence that the government has been infiltrated by Russian spies. And the FBI has identified who they believe is the most damaging culprit a CIA operative named Aldrich Ames. Over the years, Rick Ames divulged to the Russians a plethora of information. The master spy is apprehended, and the case is considered a triumph for U.S. intelligence. But then, after Ames' arrest, the agency discovers that several new cases have been compromised, 
it seems that Ames was not alone. The FBI were convinced that we had a serious mole, even worse than Rick Ames and CIA. The FBI begins a thorough manhunt within their ranks in hopes of weeding out this mole. And Special Agent Mike Rochford is assigned to the task force. I was in charge of a squad of people who are charged with finding out the identity of this person. And he's joined by another top counterintelligence agent named Robert Hansen. He was brilliant. His job in the intelligence division was to get together a database of intelligence information. Hansen puts his skills to use by scanning the FBI's computer systems to find any breaches in security. Over the next six years, the FBI continues its investigation, but the case runs cold. Then, in November of 2000, the FBI finally gets the break they need when they make contact with a former KGB agent. I established a relationship with this individual who decided to help us out. While the agent doesn't know the mole's identity, he possesses classified documents that the traitor handed over to the Russians. And he offers to sell them to the FBI for $7 million. Desperate to uncover the identity of the perpetrator, the FBI agrees to pay the lofty sum. Inside the file, they find a garbage bag neatly folded around vital U.S. intelligence documents, detailing satellite transmissions, nuclear defense systems, and even the identities of U.S. agents. He was responsible for the deaths of at least three individuals who were working for the United States government. The FBI is rocked by the breach. It seems the only thing lacking in the file is the identity of the spy. Who is the FBI's mole? And can he be brought to justice? It's November 2000, Washington, D.C. The FBI is on the hunt for a mole who has leaked priceless U.S. intelligence to the Russians. When a Soviet informant gives U.S. officials a dossier on the double agent, it seems the case is about to break wide open. So who's the traitor within the ranks of the FBI? When FBI investigators examine this black garbage bag used by the spy to transport the clandestine materials, it reveals a critical clue. Two fingerprints. And analysis of the prints finally reveals the mole's identity. They belong to the very agent tasked with uncovering the spy, Robert Hansen. I was shocked. It's stark to have that in your face, and it's like, wow. The FBI immediately hones in on their target. Hansen was under 24-hour-a-day surveillance, seven days a week. We knew that he was going to make a drop. And on February 18, 2001, they make their move. As the day winds down, Robert Hansen stops his car by a neighborhood park. From the trunk of the vehicle, he grabs a black garbage bag and walks towards a bridge inside the grounds. He goes to the bridge and drops this package. As he makes his way back to his car, FBI agents surround Hansen and arrest him. Inside the black garbage bag, they find a number of classified federal documents. But perhaps even more alarming is what Hansen says next. Robert Hansen's reaction was, what took you so long? 
the FBI determines that Hansen had been spying for the Russians for over 20 years and that he is the most damaging turncoat in U.S. history. But many in the Bureau are left wondering what drove their brilliant colleague to commit such treasonous acts. While he amassed millions spying for the Russians, Mike Rochford believes Hansen was driven to prove he was smart enough to commit treason and get away with it. He thought he was smarter than his co-workers, smarter than his boss, smarter than his subordinates. At his trial in May of 2002, Hansen pleads guilty to all 15 counts of espionage and is sentenced to life in prison without any chance of parole. And today, the garbage bag that broke the case wide open is on display at the museum, a testament to the relentless work of the FBI in bringing down the most damaging spy in the nation's history. From a mystifying medium to an ill-fated expedition, an astonishing affliction to a secret agent saboteur. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.